Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I have with me Jeremy Kokomore. Jeremy founded Right Tail Capital, a concentrated fundamental equity investment firm based in Richmond, Virginia. He loves helping people with their investments through owning high-quality, undervalued companies for the long term. Jeremy grew up in New Orleans prior to attending the University of Virginia and Harvard Business School. He then worked with several fantastic investors at Global Mutual Fund Company, T. Rowe Price, before managing concentrated portfolios at private advisors and Thompson, Siegel, and Walmsley. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Brian, great to connect with you as always. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, it's always fun when I can have somebody on that I've actually met in person before. You and I had an, you know, coffee in a ice cream shop in Richmond, I think, probably six months ago. Is that directionally sound right? Absolutely. And it's been fun to get to know you a bit over the last few years in both uh, Richmond and Nashville. Yeah. So before we get into Right Tail Capital and, and everything going on there, I'd love to hear a little bit more background on you personally and what got you involved in the investing space originally. Sure. Thanks again, Brian. I originally grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, which was an awesome place uh, to grow up. You know, a lot of great culture and music and history. One of the formative experiences early in my life was my mom and dad actually got divorced when I was five or six years old. I had two younger sisters and I really kind of felt the financial strains of our family. So that really led to a couple of things that have really played a big role in my life. One, I knew that doing well at school and having a focus on learning would be something that would be really helpful. And that curiosity and that love of learning is something that has been super impactful as I've been investing for the last 20 years or so. 
Secondly, I really felt the financial strains of our family. So I had several jobs when I was younger. I you know, helped as kind of a summer school math teacher when I was in middle school, oftentimes kind of helping other students who were you know, maybe a couple of years older than me. And then that led to having jobs throughout high school, doing the work study program, financing my college education. And then I've always been, you know, just incredibly intrigued by the idea of investing and you know, how do we turn a dollar into something more than a dollar and, and really, you know, kind of improve, you know, our, our own financial standing and maybe create, you know, more options for ourselves. And, and for that, I really have my grandfather to thank. Uh, he had kind of a small stock portfolio at the time. And, you know, every once in a while, we check in the local newspaper, the Times Picayune, and see how some of his stocks were doing. So, you know, I didn't know a thing about how to analyze a company or how to, you know, potentially try to find a stock that would produce excellent returns, which is where I spend most of my time today. But those were some of the early formative experiences in my life that, that really kind of set me on a track to pursue investing. It's always interesting to me to hear the kind of background story of why people, I will use the blanket term of money, but investing in finance. And if it feels like more often than not, it's the grandparent as opposed to maybe the parent. What was that relationship like with, you said it was your grandfather, right? Exactly. Yeah. So he really played a formative role in my life. My grandmother was also very involved as well. She passed away when I was maybe 11. So for a lot of those years, my grandfather played a very fatherly role in my life, was also one of my best friends and, you know, did everything from helping me get to school events to helping me get to, you know, different sports events. And I was just incredibly lucky to have such a great role model willing to spend so much time with us and just a relationship that I'm incredibly thankful for. Yeah, that's great. So we have a little bit of shared lineage that we discovered over coffee. One of my work colleagues on the real estate side, his father was a portfolio manager at T. Rowe. And back, I don't want to date you, but this would be in the 90s, I think, right? Where T. Rowe was like one of the smartest shops on the street at that time. How did you get from New Orleans to working with T. Rowe Price? Sure. Yeah, so I, from New Orleans, I went to the University of Virginia undergrad where I studied economics and history. I then started to become more interested in finance and investing. So I was fortunate to find an investment banking role here at Richmond that I really enjoyed. And from there, I had started to take the CFA and, and ended up at a great firm here in Richmond called Thompson Siegel and Walmsley, where I really discovered a passion for researching companies and public investments. And after working for about four years out of undergrad, I had the opportunity to go to Harvard Business School, which was just a fantastic life experience. Got to travel all around the world and just meet you know, folks from many different backgrounds and countries and different beliefs. And it was just fantastic. And coming out of HBS, and this was, I was there during the financial crisis from 2008 to 2010. And I had really kind of targeted T. Rowe as just a fantastic firm that I would really you know, love to have the opportunity to work for. 
you know, it was located in the mid Atlantic where my wife and I uh, had started to, you know, put down some roots and was just a great firm in terms of deep fundamental analysis and longer term thinking. And you're spot on. One of my mentors at T was a gentleman by the name of Greg McCrickard, who had joined T back in the late 80s. He ran one of the small cap funds. And was just a you know a great person who was very generous with his time and sharing his insights of his long career in investing. And Greg and I have remained friends. And, and to your point, kind of small world that he now worked with his son. And he was just a great example of what Tiro was all about. You know, finding great investors who wanted to think long term, and many of whom you know would end up kind of building their career and spending decades there. Yeah, and I think it's hard for people to envision this today, but you know, some of those portfolio managers had incredible track record for a, a, a super long time. And this is kind of pre-hedge fund world and mutual funds were kind of the place to be in a lot of respects. What was that like entering into the investment world after the Great Recession? What do you recall of what that felt like going into the business. Yeah, you bring up a couple of great points there. You know, first I would say if you go back to like the late 70s, early 80s, a mutual fund like Tiro was kind of like the up and coming hedge fund at the time. You know, they were able to generate great returns, oftentimes maybe competing with banks or trust departments. And they were kind of the more, you know, novel maverick in the field, if you will. To get to the part of your question in terms of joining a firm like Tiro around the time of the financial crisis, one, I, I think it was great from a talent retention standpoint. Many of the folks at Tiro, I think, appropriately realized, hey, this is a firm that is built for the long term. And, and so there wasn't a lot of employee turnover, which ended up, you know, kind of resulting in me, you know, when I joined in 2010 full time, uh, there weren't many seats available. And my first assignment was actually covering small cap metals and mining, which we can talk more about later if you want. But on the quality spectrum, I'd say, you know, some of the worst companies out there who are constantly raising money and kind of hoping that the one mine they're trying to build will end up be successful. But in general, and I think this has been true for Tiro's long history, is there, there are just a lot of really smart folks there to be able to kind of learn from, learn with. And there were some folks who only wanted to buy stocks that were at their 52-week lows. And, you know, it could be an oil and gas company or anything. And then there were other folks who, you know, kind of saw value in trying to find the next amazing growth company like a Tesla 15 years ago, even. Those are some of my best memories and, you know, been fortunate to keep in touch with many of my former Tiro colleagues. Let's get into kind of what led you to starting your own fund. I mean, going from a, a huge corporate behemoth like Tiro, and then you went and did some kind of more boutique type roles. But was it, I always kind of frame this question similarly in terms of, was there a, a catalytic moment or was it like a melting ice cube that you just knew you had to do this one day? I would say it was more the latter, Brian. 
So, you know, if I think back on it, when I was writing my business school essays back in 2007, I wrote one of them about potentially starting an investment firm one day. So that there was a dream that was always, you know, at a minimum kind of kind of flickering in the background. And when it came to early last year, it just kind of felt like several of the stars were potentially aligning. You know, family is a really big deal to me. I'm fortunate to have, you know, three children kind of between the ages of nine and 13. And fortunately, they, they're doing well in school and, and they're healthy. And so that was one factor. You know, another factor was my wife who had a fantastic career before spending about 10 years doing a great job of kind of raising our kids during their early years. She was, you know, starting to think about her next steps in her career and was thinking about going back to work. And then, you know, in terms of a personal wealth standpoint, we had, you know, saved up enough money where we could invest right alongside our partners and create some fantastic alignment while, you know, kind of allowing the business and and me to think long-term to have that duration, to be able to bet on higher quality companies over the long run. So all these stars were kind of aligning where, it seemed like, you know, kind of early 2022 was a great time. And on top of that, I felt like I was at the point in my career where, A, I had a lot of experience and insight to share with other investors, but was also young enough where, you know, look, I plan to be investing for as long as I can think soundly. And hopefully that's, you know, another few decades. And so felt like I had the right mix of experience and also energy, you know, to really build a firm that you know, had the potential to generate great investment returns over time. For a lot of us, you know, I don't think there's going to be someone that shows up with kind of an answer key and a pot of gold that says, hey, now's the time to do it. But those are all the reasons why early last year kind of felt like the right time to start right till. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success, which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at macinternational.com. Yeah, I mean, as an entrepreneur myself, it's I always tell other people, it's not a shuttle launch, like there's no perfect window. It's never going to be a great time. And you just, once you've made that mental kind of leap, you just need to go ahead and do it kind of in reality. So kudos to you. It's a lot of work, which we'll get into. So what is the pitch? What's the investment thesis? You talked about alignment and timing if you could kind of distill it down into the elevator version about right tail, what is it you all are doing? Sure. The investment philosophy is a pretty simple one. 
um, I'm going to own a concentrated portfolio, which will typically be about 10 to 15 investments that are, you know, higher quality public equities trading at kind of a discount to a fair price. So it really is that simple. You know, I want to find businesses that are profitable, have a good balance sheet and are run by uh, a good management team that will be great stewards of the cash flow that the business produces over time. And the name Rightail, I think, describes, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to build as well. So there were really four reasons why the name Rightail kind of jumped out to me. On the investing side, you know, I want the returns to be excellent and to be in the right tail of kind of a normal L-shaped distribution curve. And secondly, I'm typically going to be investing in those higher quality businesses that have proven themselves to be kind of standouts relative to their peers. And then the two personal sides of why right tail really stood out to me. And I know you and I think similarly on this, Brian, is I love the idea of how do we all get a little bit better day by day and kind of improve our own outcomes, whether it's investing, whether it's health and wellness, general learning. I just love that process. And lastly was the part that we touched on a little bit at the beginning of just knowing what it's like to not have much in the way of financial resources growing up, the responsibility um, of managing someone else's wealth and trying to you know, grow their opportunities over time is one that I take really seriously and why you know, I love investing right alongside each of our partners. So let's maybe educate the audience a little bit for folks that aren't as familiar with some of the terminology or style that you're referring to. So this would be, like you said, a concentrated portfolio. So that'd be typically 10 to 20 positions, right? So 10 to 20 companies that you own maybe referred to as a high conviction portfolio. Could you maybe describe the style of investing of that is versus what a high frequency trading hedge fund or more of a churn style funds, maybe use those as a foil to one another to explain kind of your approach versus what some others might be in the market? Sure, Brian. You hit the nail on the head. At any one time, I'm typically going to own 10 to 15 stocks each investment that I make, I kind of go into it with the mindset of I'd like to own this business for three you know, years, hopefully even longer. If the business is doing well and can continue to create value for all of its shareholders, then that's fantastic for a number of reasons. One, the business kind of continues to create value and can produce great investment returns. Two, you know, for many of our investors, I'm managing a taxable account for them. And so if we are able to find good long-term investments, we also, you know, encourage that additional compounding and slow down the process of having to pay a big tax bill. Now, I tend to believe that one of the real advantages that still remains in the public markets is that ability to think longer term than most participants and to your point, so much of the money that is managed in public markets today has kind of tended towards firms that have a much shorter term time horizon. And so to your point, they may be trading in and out of positions, you know, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And oftentimes they're just trying to find that next data point 
you know, and it might be a data point around how the business is going to perform during their earnings call or whatever it might be. Again, I try to take the exact opposite approach and I'm wired more that way myself where I want to find these businesses that are just doing the right thing day in and day out, slowly uh, gaining market share while providing a great service for their customers. And, you know, over the long term, I think that strategy will do really well. But to your point, it's very different uh, than a lot of firms. And I would say there are parts of it that make it harder to implement, you know, and one of them is so many firms are judged on such a short term basis by their investors. Sometimes it could be institutional investors and everybody's trying to do a great job. But if you don't, you know, maybe if you don't have the career longevity, it makes it a bit harder to think longer term and have that mindset versus kind of the, the shorter term thrills of hopefully generating good investment returns. Yeah. And, and I think what a lot of it is, and you're very thoughtful about this, having the right limited partner, right investor base who are willing to have patient capital, right? So ultra high net worth individuals or families who have a very long-term time horizon that aren't going to judge you on a daily basis and look at the scoreboard and say, oh, he's down you know, X points today. That's not what this is about. This is really almost bringing like a private equity, private company type investment strategy to the public markets, and, which is great. You have to be very careful about the LPs that you invite along for that ride, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, I try to spend uh, a lot of time on the front end with each investor and make sure that we are kind of, you know, both aligned and appropriately playing with a longer term mindset. So that's something that's critical. Now, you know, there are a lot of advantages. I'm set up as a as an RIA, a registered investment advisor. And so each right tail investor has their own account on the Charles Schwab platform that Rytale has trading privileges over. And the positives are each investor has full transparency into each investment and what the returns are, even the shorter term returns. Although I often you know, mention to our investors, a lot of times it'll be like watching paint dry because in a typical year, Rytale might make zero to three new investments. Um, right, because we have a small we have a smaller portfolio in terms of the number of names, and are typically going to be holding our investments for a longer period of time. But you're right, trying to make sure we have a similar mindset up front is super important. So I don't want to get too in tight on market machinations as of today, but maybe if we take a step back, you entered into the investment business after '08. We're recording this in kind of Q4 of 2023, there's a lot of nervousness in the market. A lot of things going on geopolitically, domestically, internationally. Obviously, the interest rate story is one that's going to take a while to play out. Would love to hear your kind of global thoughts around maybe some of the similarities and differences that you see in the market today versus what you saw post Great Recession. Absolutely. You know, in general, my mindset is to always be aware of kind of what's going on in the macro environment, while also realizing that my ability to predict the macro environment is 
is very small, very limited. And, and if I were amazing at that, which I think is very rare and most people are, you know, I'd be off doing something else. And it's probably not the person who's on CNBC every day who has a certain view that is actually, you know, kind of generating the great macro investment returns. So I try to be aware of what's going on. And I actually wrote one of my investor letters last year about this, where I took a passage from one of Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings. And I kind of asked our investors and our readers to, you know, guess the year that we were talking about. With the point being that, you know, pretty much every year Warren Buffett gets asked about interest rates. There's often a big geopolitical conflict going on. And year in, year out, he kind of talks about largely being focused on, you know, just finding great investments. And so the year in reference ended up being one in the late 90s. And it's very similar to how I've felt as I've been running Rightail for a good portion of the last two years. And in general, I would say the opportunity set, it's certainly you know not as robust as maybe it was in 2009 when valuations were just incredibly low at the time. But also, I am finding a lot of great investment opportunities and the investment opportunity set is a lot better than it has been for a good chunk of the last five to seven years or so when interest rates were near zero and, you know, sort of any type of business with a hope or a prayer might be able to get funding and and have their stock prices go up at, at least. And, you know, so for a discerning investor like myself who does deep fundamental work, the opportunity set is quite attractive at the moment. Bearish on the market. I would say I'm I would say I'm optimistic. You know, in general, I feel that the United States will continue to do well by encouraging entrepreneurship, protecting intellectual property, all the characteristics that have historically made the United States a good place to invest and do business, to me still hold. And if I'm taking that larger universe of primarily US-based companies and investing in ones that are leaders in their industries and generating returns on their investment much higher than their cost of capital, even in an environment where interest rates are higher, that those businesses will do well and outperform over time. So I'm, I'm more bullish on the individual companies themselves and their ability to kind of outperform their peers and do well over time. So I'm going to put a poll up on LinkedIn later today, but I'm curious, do you think that the, we'll just use the S&P, will it be higher or lower a year from now than what it is today? You know, my ability to predict that, Brian, I would say is near zero. The longer the time horizon you gave me, the more willing I'd be to call it say, yeah, five years, five years. Yeah, five five years, I would make the bet that it'll be higher than it is today. In any one year, it is so, you know, it is so hard to predict. And as kind of the market over time has generally averaged maybe, you know, a seven to seven to ten percent return with dividends. But that seven to ten percent is made up of majority up years, some that could be, you know, kind of plus thirty. And a bunch of down years too. And so predicting any one is not something that I'm going to do a particularly great job of. And I recognize that. 
And that goes back to your original thesis. And the title of this episode is going to be the power of compound interest or just this concept of compounding that you alluded to earlier. You know, I you wrote a really good, I can't remember when, a newsletter about how you take this concept of fitness and your own personal fitness or maybe self-improvement and you apply it to your investing kind of thesis or acumen. I'd love for you to explore that a little bit more here and talk further about it. Sure, sure. So I'm always trying to get a little bit better and that could pertain to a lot of different things. So I would say, you know, in terms of having the, the right mindset to produce great investment returns, there are a lot of things I do on a daily basis to help create that right environment and to help improve and to give us the best odds of achieving our goals. And so on the personal side, it's everything from, you know, things that I would put more in the mental wellness bucket of I meditate pretty much every day. I journal often as well. And journaling helps me in a lot of ways. It can help me early in the day in terms of setting a plan for the day. It also helps me later in the day in terms of just sort of recognizing, you know, what I've kind of worked on, what I've learned, what are maybe some unanswered questions that I need to spend more time kind of thinking about. Um, exercise is also something that that is super helpful and eating healthy. And that's a good example of, you know, just getting a little bit better over the years and maybe each year picking one thing to kind of work on and all these things, whether it's physical fitness or, you know, mental wellness, you know, I think improve the odds and help me be a better investor uh, while also helping me be a better husband and a better father. And so to me, it all kind of relates and has a big impact and will create a lot of value over the years. Yeah. I mean, I tell my kids this all the time. It's really hard to step into any given time period and say, I want to improve it 10%. But obviously if you break it down to 1% a month and you figure you don't always hit it, but you kind of try your best 5% year over year is significant. I completely agree. Yeah. Whenever someone asks me, you know, what should they work on uh, to maybe get a little bit better in one of these areas? I usually encourage them, Hey, just why don't you just work on one thing, you know, and maybe have it be one thing that you feel really strongly that you can do or one thing that really matters to you for some reason. And you know, once you develop a habit and that becomes part of your routine, then maybe you can think about, you know, kind of adding on something else. But yeah, really just try to make it part of the routine, part of your everyday can go a really long way. Yeah. And for the record, we, you and I stuck to coffee at the ice cream shop. We did not indulge ourselves. So like, let's just be consistent with our messaging here. We made, we made good long-term choices when we got together, whenever that was. Absolutely. Yeah. We strayed away from those. Although it looked uh, really good. That were... Yeah. They looked incredible. <laughs> there was like a crew of high school girls in there that were just crushing these huge Sundays that looked unbelievable. So, so as we wrap the conversation up, if somebody listening is, you know, high net worth individual, family with long-term capital, but they came from a non-finance background, they're not a professional investor and then didn't come up in that space, and they're looking to be thoughtful about deploying capital into the market or with managers today, 
what would be the questions you would urge them to ask as they do their diligence on a group like yours or others, given everything you've learned over your career? Sure. One of the first questions would be, you know, what type of investing feels comfortable to you? Because, you know, money and investing is one of those things that I think is very personal to each of us. And we each have years and decades of experiences growing back to what we learned from our parents and grandparents. And so, you know, I meet folks who maybe own a private company and some real estate, and they're really comfortable with, you know, all their eggs in those baskets and have a lot of distrust for the stock market. Other folks love investing in the stock market and can take a longer term approach and maybe consistently add to their investments over time and and not get scared when the market is maybe presenting the best opportunities or said differently when it's down a bunch. So the first question would be to just try to understand, you know, hey, what type of investing aligns well with your own personal makeup? And then secondly, you know, if, if meeting with a manager such as myself, regardless of what the investment strategy or philosophy is, I would encourage your listeners to just think a lot about alignment. And so, you know, two of the ways that that we've created a lot of alignment at Rightail are one, you know, my wife and I have invested a significant amount of our liquid net worth alongside our other investors. And I think we'll likely always be the largest investor in terms of percentage of net worth. So that's one way. We've also tried to create alignment around fee structures where one of our fee structures actually has no management fee and is only a performance fee attached to it, very similar to some of Warren Buffett's early partnership structures in the 1950s and 60s. So those would be two questions I would spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what type of investments kind of align with you personally. And also if you are looking at or thinking about you know, a manager, what types of alignment might there be or not be? Well, Jeremy, that's very helpful. I want to thank you so much for coming on. If people are interested in learning more about Rightail or connecting with you, I, I definitely recommend that they get on the distribution list. Your writing is very thoughtful and really helps people kind of think through not just the investment side, but just a lot of times just life, right? So what's the best way for them to engage and learn more? Well, thank you very much, Brian. I really appreciate it. There are several ways to engage. My email is just jeremy at rightailcapital.com. And my website is www.rightailcapital.com. So those are great places to start. And I also you know, try to share my writings on LinkedIn and, and Twitter as well. So folks can find me there. But I'm always you know, I enjoy meeting people and, you know, looking for ways that I can help others. And so always enjoy meeting other, you know, kind of insightful, hardworking people who are trying to get a little bit better each day. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I've had the opportunity to, to meet with Jeremy, I think twice now, once in Nashville, once in Richmond, incredible person, thoughtful person. And he's talented, but I think his wife is probably the real rock star of the family. She's also incredible and doing some really cool things. I need to get her on the show, actually. That'd be really fun. But please, our listeners, let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Leave us a review and a rating. 
Jeremy, a question that we ask people that come on, you already kind of mentioned a few things, but do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Sure. Yes. I'd say the two most important ones are probably physical exercise and meditating as well. And it's hard to pick one over the other, Brian, because they both help me so much. For whatever reason, the physical exercise piece has probably come a bit easier to me over time or just the ability to keep it as part of the daily routine. And, you know, that practice of meditating is something that I've continued to find more valuable over time and also continue to work at. So, you know, I would encourage uh, your listeners to think about both and whether it's exercising or meditating, even a little bit has been tremendously helpful to me. So start small and kind of compound from there. I love it. Thank you for sharing. Jeremy, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been terrific. Best of luck moving forward. And I hope we can meet up in person again soon. Thanks for all you do, Brian. ton of respect for you and really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Stamps.com. Code program.